Good evening and welcome to Harvard Divinity School for this keynote lecture, the first of two public events associated with a conference entitled The Abrahamic Religions Between Scholarship and Practice. Uh, my name is Charles Stang. I'm the director of the Center for the Study of World Religions across the street. And the center, along with the John Paul II Center for Interreligious Dialogue, have put this conference on. And the conference begins this evening with Professor Guy Strums's lecture on the comparative study of the Abrahamic religions, heuristic gains and cognitive pitfalls, and with a response by our very own Professor John Levinson. The conference concludes tomorrow evening with a panel discussion in this same room on the public practice of the Abrahamic religions. An event, an event held in conjunction with the Harvard Divinity School's longstanding colloquium on religions and the practices of peace. You're most welcome to attend that second event tomorrow evening as well, but we ask that you RSVP for that event. And the link for that you can find on the posters advertising the event, or if you go to the center's events page, there's a link there as well. So it falls to me this evening to welcome you all to say a brief word about the aims and purposes of this conference, to thank our sponsors and partners, and finally to introduce my colleague, Adam Afterman, who will in turn introduce our two speakers. So first of all, welcome, and thank you all for coming out this evening. Thanks especially to our conference participants. I know some of you have traveled very far to come here and through some difficult circumstances, and we're very grateful. And in a spirit of Abrahamic hospitality, I welcome you. And as a sign of that hospitality and mutual respect, I'm going to remind everyone, please, to silence your cell phones. I'm going to do the same. So what is the aim of this conference on the three so-called Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam? all three of which lay distinctive claim to the figure of Abraham. It's now fairly commonplace to speak of these three monotheistic religions in one breath, the Abrahamic. But what follows that adjective can change. Abrahamic religions, tradition, covenant, hospitality, and of course more. And further questions present themselves. When did this category first emerge and why? What work does the grouping of these three religions do, and for whom? Are there good reasons to celebrate this category or to be suspicious of it? How does the category help or hinder our understanding of these three distinct religions in their pre-modern, modern, and contemporary idioms? Now, much work has already been done in pursuit of these questions. In fact, a number of the people gathered for this conference have been in pursuit of them for many years. I think it's fair to say that the pursuit has followed two largely independent tracks which occasionally intersect. The first track is the more scholarly, the academic study of religion, and especially the comparative study of religion. The question animating this track is whether or not the Abrahamic is a good category or not, and why. What does it allow us to see, and what does it obscure from view? 
The second track is also scholarly, but it's more practical and more theological, and it usually flies under the banner of interreligious dialogue. The animating question here is whether or not the Abrahamic enables or inhibits dialogue across our religious differences, and why. And we have representatives of both approaches in the room tonight. But there's also a third dimension to this topic that I want to name, although part of the challenge is exactly how to name it. The category of the Abrahamic religions is also increasingly marshaled for contemporary social and political work. For example, the Abrahamic is invoked as an inspiration for certain kinds of diplomacy. It's deployed to help build broader support for humanitarian action around the world. It serves at times as a kind of adhesive for emerging geopolitical alliances. And crucially, it's increasingly called upon to help frame and reframe national and even international identities. For example, in the American context, some wonder whether the category of the Abrahamic can help revise our national identity to make room for Muslims alongside Christians and Jews. Similarly, in Europe, the notion of the Abrahamic is at times called upon to offer a new European identity, perhaps rooted in a pre-modern past, that might be more hospitable to an increasing Muslim population. Obviously, the rising dislocation and migration of peoples in and across continents makes such efforts all the more pressing. So we've attempted to capture all of these examples of the third track and more with this phrase, public practice. And so here we find ourselves following three paths in pursuit of the Abrahamic religions. The academic study of religion, the practice of inter-religious dialogue, and the public practice of the Abrahamic religions. We find ourselves then, as our title suggests, between scholarship and practice. And while I think it's important to keep these three approaches distinct, at least analytically, the truth is, is that they influence each other, inform each other, and at times may even bleed into one another. So the conceit of this conference is to bring these three braids together and thereby pursue a new braided approach to the study and practice of the Abrahamic religions. There are many people to thank for this endeavor. First and foremost, I wish to thank the staff of the Center for the Study of World Religions who have worked many, many hours to pull this event together. I'm deeply grateful to them. Thank you. Next, I'd like to thank our co-sponsor, the John Paul II Center for Interreligious Dialogue, whose generosity has helped us bring all these wonderful scholars and practitioners together here at Harvard Divinity School. The generosity of the John Paul II Center is in turn made possible by the generosity of the Russell Berry Foundation. And I'm delighted that Angelica Berry, uh, president of the Berry Foundation, and Naomi Shank, its program director, are here with us this evening. And finally, I'd like to acknowledge our partners here at Harvard, including the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, the Awalid Islamic Studies Program, and the Divinity Schools Initiative on Religions and the Practices of Peace. Thank you all, named and unnamed, for your support for this endeavor in recent months. You know who you are, and so do I. 
Finally, I'd like to introduce my dear friend and colleague, Professor Adam Afterman, who's organized this conference with me in the past year. Professor Afterman is Associate Professor and the Chair of the Department of Jewish Philosophy and Talmud at Tel Aviv University. He is also a Senior Research Fellow at the Kogod Research Center for Contemporary Jewish Thought at the Shalom Hartman Institute. And in 2015, spring of 2015, he was a visiting senior lecturer here at Harvard Divinity School. His main fields of research are medieval Jewish philosophy, Kabbalah, and mysticism. Professor Afterman is also the co-director of the John Paul Center for Interreligious Dialogue. Adam, please. Thank you, Charles, for introducing our conference and uh, for acknowledging our co-sponsors and partners here at Harvard and uh, beyond. It is a great privilege this evening to introduce our two distinguished speakers, Professors Guy Strumza and John Levinson. Guy Strumza is Martin Puber Professor Emeritus of Comparative Religion at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and Emeritus Professor of the Study of Abrahamic Religions at the University of Oxford, where he is also an Emeritus Fellow of the Lady Margaret Hall. He is a member of the Israel Academy of Science, Sciences and Humanities. Professor Strumza's research focuses on the dynamics of encounters between religious traditions and institutions in the Roman Empire and late antiquity in the Mediterranean and the Middle East. He's the author of 14 books and the editor or co-editor of some 20 books. He has published more than 130 articles. Allow me to highlight two that are especially relevant to this conference. In 2015, he saw the publication of the, so, uh, the co-edited volume, The Oxford Handbook of the Abrahamic Religions. And that same year, he saw the publication of The Making of the Abrahamic Religions in Late Antiquity. John Levinson, his Albert A. List Professor of Jewish Studies, began teaching at Harvard in 1988. His work concentrates on the interpretation of the Hebrew Bible including its reinterpretations in the rewritten Bible of Second Temple Judaism and Rabbinic Midrash. Professor Levinson has a strong interest in the philosophical and theological issues involved in the biblical studies, especially the relationship of pre-modern modes of interpretation to modern historical criticism. Especially relevant for this evening's topic is his 2012 Inheriting Abraham, the Legacy of the Patriarch in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Professor Strumza will now deliver his keynote lecture with Professor Levinson's response to follow immediately. If there's time, Professor Stang will return to the podium to take questions from the audience for either or both of our speakers. Please join me in welcoming Professor Strumza and Levinson. Please. Thank you very much and good evening to everybody. I'm uh, a bit, uh, I'm very honored and a bit nervous and a bit embarrassed because uh, while I sent the draft of my paper to Professor Levinson in early July or late June, uh, I don't know what he's going to respond to since uh, I, I told him I might cut parts of my presentation in order to save time. So that, that may mean that I will have to cut a bit less uh, 
than I planned to in order for you to understand the, uh, what, uh, what Professor Levinson will refer to. Um, let me, with no further ado, start, and I'll read in order to save time. I, when you don't read, you spend more time. The idea of the Abrahamic religions has become quite fashionable in the last generation or so. As recently dem demonstrated by Mark Silk, in English, the adjective Abrahamic itself is more than two centuries old. And yet, the common use of Abrahamic religions to refer to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam is a much more recent phenomenon, and it is growing exponentially. Silk notes that, in English at least, its usage doubled between 1980 and 1995, only to double again by 2005. The soil in which the locution first grew, however, is most likely to have been continental Europe. It seems that the new common use of the notion originates in the writings of the French Arabist Louis Massignon, who died in 1962 and was developed by some of his Maronite students at the Collège de France. If it soon picked up momentum, particularly in Western Europe, this is due, at least in part, to the fact that it reflected an expression of goodwill on the part of some European Christians belonging to the intellectual elites who sought to welcome the new Muslim populations of Europe as if saying, you too are members of the family. Just add, they had started referring to the Judeo-Christian tradition soon after the Second World War in order to atone for the Nazi genocide of the Jews. I should note here that today, both in Europe and the United States, objections to the idea of the Abrahamic religions and the preferential use of the Judeo-Christian tradition are more often than not a codified expression aiming more at the exclusion of Muslims than at the inclusion of Jews. Indeed, Islamophobes of today look like the Siamese brothers of yesterday's and today's anti-Semites. By emphasizing Europe as the locus where the concept of the Abrahamic religions primarily developed in the last decades of the 20th century, I do not mean to deny its existence either earlier or in America although the relative size of Muslim populations in the Americas is in no way comparable to that in Western Europe. Similarly, the geographical closeness and the intertwined histories of North Africa and the Middle East to Europe give Muslim presence there a concrete character it lacks in America. To put it bluntly, questions related to religious convivencia have in Europe an intensity and, a, and an existential urgency that they do not possess in America, even after 9-11. Like all new and trendy ideas, however, the idea of the Abrahamic religions soon attracted criticism from a number of perspectives. Neither all those involved in interfaith dialogue, both between Christians and Jews and between Christians and Muslims, nor many historians of religions felt comfortable with the concept, which they found was poorly suited to their own work. Hence, it may be time to take stocks and to wonder, beyond its historical roots, about both the scholarly pertinence, pertinence and the political implications of the idea of the Abrahamic religions. 
One must admit that the origins of the notion of Abrahamic religions are misleading and may induce the scholar into some hard, harmful ambiguity. In all fairness, I must at once state my own instinctive sympathy for the skeptical attitude about using the locution Abrahamic religions in comparative research. When asked 10 years ago to apply to the newly established professorship for the study of the Abrahamic religions at Oxford, which I would eventually be offered and accept, my initial reaction was that I didn't like the chair's title. For me, it pointed out, it pointed to something that had no place in the purview of scholarly research and academic teaching. How I came to change my view is partly explained in what follows. Religions are, for the historian, social facts. Like all social facts, they are born, they grow, and they eventually die. Historians tackle problems related to the birth of religions, to their development, and to their decline. They also seek to understand the mechanisms of interaction between religions and of their interface between other central aspects of society. Methodologically, historians of religions should all behave as if they were atheists, or at least agnostics, expected as they are to analyze all religions with the same tools, to apply to them the same criteria of investigation, to consider them all as products of human societies rather than of divine revelation. Such principles are or should be obvious, and one feels a bit embarrassed to even state them, but they ought to be reiterated at the onset of a meeting such as ours. It is only when historians are true to their calling that they can hope to be of help to those involved in interfaith praxis. Part of my argument will be that the praxis of historians of religions too bears upon society at large, and that their craft does more than reflect a technical ability to read and interpret documents from ancient or foreign societies. There's obviously no single high road to the study of religions. The comparative approach is one among many paths. And yet, for a number of reasons, it maintains a predominance over other approaches, which I want to emphasize. The comparative study of cultures, rituals, and myths has been with us since at least Herodotus. Hence, the central status it keeps in our cultural history, a status that cannot be, hence the central status it keeps in our cultural history, a status that cannot be easily ignored or brushed aside. Moreover, there is no such thing as comparison-free reflection on religion. Even when comparing religions is not the explicit aim, it remains implicitly present, if only for polemical purposes, my religion is better than yours, my gods are stronger than yours, etc. In Weberian parlance, no comparison is wertfrei, value-free. Throughout most of history, the comparison of religions essentially served a polemical purpose, even when its goal was to demonstrate the inanity of all religious traditions. Such is the case, for instance, in the anonymous Livre des Trois Imposteurs, the most famous Samizdat of the 18th century which argued that Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad had been, each in his turn, religious impostors. If no comparison is value-free, this does not mean that the comparative activity is devoid of intellectual rigor and honesty. 
In the late 19th century, the comparative method, which was at its acme in the different sciences, was indeed related to the age of imperialism, as has been repeatedly pointed out, comparing, for instance, British to Indian law. Yet, it also reflected genuine, honest intellectual curiosity, and then became the leading model for scientific and scholarly investigation. Beyond its deep roots in cultural history, the comparative approach to the study of religions reigned in the last third of the 19th century. Although, historically speaking, the modern study of religions grew from secularized theology, it is a secular, secular humanistic endeavor and perceives religion as a human, not a divine phenomenon. It comes as no surprise that theologians have usually perceived the study of religions as a threat. By right, then, the study of religion belongs to faculties of humanities or of arts and sciences in this country, even if it is often anchored in broadened faculties of theology. The idea of comparing, of comparing the Abrahamic religions immediately raises the question of its intellectual justification. Is the concept of the Abrahamic religions heuristically helpful? And is it methodologically needed? Does it help us understand these religions better than we would otherwise? A number of monographs have recently been devoted to the idea of the Abrahamic religions. Among them, various attempts have sought to answer this question from a number of viewpoints, and some have pointed out a number of difficulties raised by this concept. Two recent books by American scholars might be highlighted. John Levinson, my respondent, published in 2012, Inheriting Abraham, the Legacy of the Patriarch in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The other book by Aaron Hughes, is entitled Abrahamic Religions on the Uses and Abuses of History, and was also published in 2012. The synchrony of these two publications, incidentally, highlights the fact that our topic seems to reflect the zeitgeist. Both authors react to what they perceive rightly as a new scholarly trend, which makes rather uncritical use of an expression coined for interfaith dialogue not for scholarly investigation. In these books, both authors, authors intended to call scholarly attention to the concern that the use of Abrahamic religions might put historical research on the wrong tracks. Intellectual accuracy, for them, demands rigorous tools, crafted especially for the task at hand, rather than tools adopted, adapted from the wholly different purpose for which they had been crafted. John Levinson emphasizes the different emblematic figures of Abraham as they are presented and developed in the various Abrahamic religions. He rightly insists on the fact that the patriarch's legacy is a different one in each case. In a sense, Levinson returns here with more scholarly accuracy to the elevated level of Massignon's three prayers of Abraham. The differences in the personality of Abraham as forged by the three traditions reflect their own inclinations, their own perception of the essence of Abrahamic monotheism. Unlike Massignon, however, Levinson argues that speaking of three equally Abrahamic religions, just as hypostatizing an imaginary Abrahamic meta-religion, of which Judaism, Christianity, and Islam would be historical variants, 
reflects, to put it mildly, mildly, both wishful thinking and dramatic historical inaccuracies. He echoes here the Catholic philosopher Rémi Brague, who has argued forcefully against the idea of the Abrahamic religions. For Brague, the status of Islam, which does not accept the Bible, or at least its Jewish and Christian vulgates, as revealed literature, is here strikingly different from both Judaism and Christianity. The different ways in which the figure of Abraham was declined and developed in the various oral and written traditions of the three religions throughout history can certainly offer us insights on the peculiarities and character of these traditions. Yet, it would be a mistake to focus mainly on the figure of the patriarch if our main interest lies in understanding the whole structure of a religious system. It is not so much the differences between the Jewish, the Christian, and the Islamic figures of Abraham that we most need to ascertain, as those in the overall structure of the three religions. We should ask to what extent our formulation of the problems gains in clarity from a comparative approach. If we can suggest solutions established upon comparisons between the three different formulations of the questions in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, then the comparative approach will be justified from a heuristic point of view. The fast spread of the notion of the Abrahamic religions since the 1970s clearly reflects a practice of interfaith dialogue, usually between Christians and Muslims. Such interfaith dialogue is certainly refreshing after long centuries of virulent religious polemics. But, as Hughes notes correctly, the practice of interfaith dialogue and the comparative study of religion have little in common. While the first seeks to highlight similarities, the second is mainly interested in differences. Hence, a notion coined for interfaith purposes perverts rather than supports the scholarly enterprise. Hughes, who belabors this point, his point at length, is certainly in is certainly correct in identifying the origin of the notion of the Abrahamic religion, of the Abrahamic religions, religion. Two alternative ways, then, offer themselves to us. The first is to repudiate altogether the idea of a joint platform regrouping Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Why compare if we're dealing with such different and rich sets of phenomena, when there is so much to research in each of these fields? The incommensurability of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam is, of course, a traditional claim of theologians, even those called liberal, as for them, only their own tradition fully reflects divine revelation. Suffice it, suffice it to recall here Adolf von Harnack, the great Berlin church historian, who objected to teaching the history of religions in theological faculties. For him, Christianity, the best and the richest of all possible religions, embraced all religious phenomena worthy of the attention of apprentice theologians. Harnack was here at the antipodes of another leading German scholar, the Oxonian Max Müller, for whom knowing only one single religion was tantamount to knowing none. Mutatis mutandis, a reasoning similar to Harnack's, may be found among Jewish and Muslim theologians, or promoters of religious and ethnic identity wrapped in the mantle of theologians, people as likely as not 
to object opening their curricula to their Abrahamic competitors. Under the refusal to speak about the Abrahamic religions then, lurks a nominalism, which is itself deeply theological in essence. Each religion is an island, remaining forever isolated and well-defined, never to be aggregated to a larger, looser entity. There is, to be sure, a dialectical process of reciprocal reinforcement between such atavistic attitudes, academic disciplines, and administrative compartmentalization. The answer to the recurrent litany against the urge to compare is as obvious as it is repetitive. On structural and genetic grounds alike, these three great religious traditions reflect a number of common traits that point to what Wittgenstein called family resemblances. Similarities between these three traditions, or rather clusters of traditions, are serious enough to justify a generic term under which they are subsumed. Just as the existence of families of languages is universally accepted, so that, so that of families of religions cannot seriously be doubted. The growth of the comparative sciences in the late 19th century, indeed, had started, at least for the human sciences, with the discovery of linguistic families prompted by the Western discovery of Sanskrit and its grammatical and lexical similarities with European languages. Max Müller himself, traditionally perceived as the one who first established the modern comparative study of religions, started his career as a Sanskrit philologist, Müller, like Ernest Renan, was of course right to speak about linguistic families. His major category mistake, which would have dramatic consequences, was to identify them with families of religions. Hughes calls for our vigilance against using linguistic metaphors, such as family, in order to deal with religions in history, arguing for the need of a precise language rather than recycling the vocabulary of interfaith conversations. Here, too, a healthy linguistic caution is marred, marred by the fact that all language is metaphorical in some way. What is important is to recognize the limitations of our own natural languages and the historical roots of our vocabulary. One may add that just as the linguist comparing languages from the same family will focus on the differences rather than on the similarities between them, the historian comparing religions from the same family will want to understand more precisely the ways in which they differ from one another. Now, even after the need for a generic term encompassing Judaism, Christianity, and Islam is accepted, the appropriate terminology remains to be found. Is it possible to find another term less problematic than Abrahamic religions? One could, of course, choose the traditional option and speak about the monotheistic religions. This last expression, however, is also questionable as it assumes that monotheism distinguishes these three religions from all others, a patently false assumption. In late antiquity, for instance, Platonic philosophers called Hellenes or pagans by their patristic Christian opponents can be considered to have been monotheists. To some extent, indeed, their monotheism was stricter than that of the Christian fathers. The pagan Plotinus, for one, was probably more of a monotheist 
than the Christian origin. There exist other possible denominations, such as prophetic religions or religions of the book, but those involve similar problems. Both prophecy and scriptures can be found also in other religious systems. Zoroastrianism, for instance, is both a prophetic religion and a scriptural one. In this regard, dualism seems to be a special radical case of monotheism. I once chaired a panel at a conference in Jerusalem in which both the Zoroastrian high priest and the president of the Parsi community in Mumbai participated. While the latter spoke with pride of the dualistic system of his religion, the former argued angrily that claiming that Zoroastrianism was anything but a monotheistic religion was sheer nonsense. How then may the comparative study of the Abrahamic religions be approached? The first task I submit is one of deconstruction through which the idea of three and only three Abrahamic religions should be dismantled. There may be certain common characteristics between these three systems, but, they are, but are they always the same in the various historical and cultural contexts? And are they exclusive of these three religions and absent from others, genetically related to these religions, such as the Samaritan, Manichaean, Druze, Baha'i, or Mormon religions. Similar problems will immediately appear if we seek to highlight the scriptural character of the Abrahamic religions. Speaking of a religion of the book is not always adequate, for instance, to describe early Christianity. While Judaism underwent a retreat into the oral in late antiquity, precisely at the time identified by Wilfred Cantwell Smith as that of the scriptural movement that led from the collection of the New Testament and of the Mishnah to that of the Quran. Again, will prophecy prove heuristically more useful than monotheism or holy books as a category specific to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam? Obviously not, as it is to be found in various other religions from those of ancient Greece and the ancient Near East not to speak of Zoroastrianism, Manichaeism, and all the religions that grew on monotheistic soil. Even the dom dominant status of ethics in religion, which seems to single out Judaism in the ancient world, and which is directly linked to the central role of pro prophecy in biblical Israel, may not have appeared so clearly to com contemporary observers. Does not the Emperor Julian, Julian the Apostate, there's state that there is no difference between the religion, the religion of Israel and our own, that is to say, the Hellenic tradition, except for the fact, he adds, that the Hebrews have only one God. Other taxonomies have been proposed in the past. They assume that we may call the theological triangle between Judaism, Christianity, and Islam to be isosceles rather than equilateral. Two of these three traditions are comparable, while the third remains, in each case, the odd man out, as it were. The idea of a grand divide separating one of these three tradition, religions from the, two, the other two does certainly make sense, but only to a certain extent. Hence, Judaism and Christianity share the text of the Hebrew Bible, a corpus 
called Old Testament by the Christians, while, according to Martin Buber's Witz, it is for the Jews neither Old nor a Testament. The Abrahamic character of Islam, on the other hand, has a different scriptural anchor, Quranic rather than biblical. In establishing world religions, the earliest Christians and Muslims have brought to its rational conclusion the belief in one universal God, distinguishing themselves radically from the Jews, who have ever remained unable to solve the antinomy between the universal God, father of all humankind, and the idea of a chosen people. In that sense, Christianity and Islam could become the foundations of great cultural and political civilizations. Finally, Judaism and Islam see themselves as sharing a stricter conception of God's unity, a unity that for the Christians remained, remains embroiled in the snares of the Holy Trinity. Moreover, Judaism and Islam function to a great extent according to ritual rules of behavior, halakha and sharia. Here, their structural closeness sets them apart from Christianity. Hughes lodges a caveat against making secondary use of theological terminology in academic discourse. According to him, Abrahamic vocabulary is too loaded to be useful for the historian of religion. Its use by scholars involves a constant danger of slipping back into theology. Like Monsieur Jourdain, Molière's bourgeois gentilhomme, who spoke of prose sans le savoir, when one speaks Abrahamic, one is doing theology unintentionally. Few accusations, indeed, could be more damning for the historian. It would seem, however, that there are no real alternative, alternatives. Or to be more precise, I have so far found no convincing alternative to the Abrahamic religions. As we've seen, any one of the other choices involves problems of one sort or, or another. Moreover, refusing to find a common denominator to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam reflects a religious nominalism under which lurks, more often than not, a crypto-theological approach, all the more pernicious, pernicious as it remains implicit. When dealing with religion, all our concepts are heavily impregnated with theological overtones. Avoiding religiously tainted vocabulary at all cost must remain a vain hope. The only sensible option, then, is to accept using this vocabulary while at the same time be wearing its unintended consequences. Carlo Ginzburg has compared the historian to a surgeon who must sterilize his or her instruments before proceeding to an operation. Our instruments, all of them, have been used previously in different contexts and for other purposes. What we can do and what we must insist on doing is to sanitize or neutralize these instruments, that is to say, our concepts, before using them anew. If the locution Abrahamic religions comes to us from interfaith goodwill, rather than rejecting it en bloc, we must cleanse it, as it were, of theological implications in order to make secondary use of it safe for scholarship. 
Both interfaith dialogue and the scholarly study of religion are often studied in the same faculties, faculties or schools of divinity or of theology, now often carrying the appendix and religion as if theology was no part of religion. This traditional organization of knowledge is responsible for a category mistake. We too often believe that the roots of the non-theological study of religion are to be found in theology. Actually, it is from the spirit of free thought, rather than from that of theology, that the modern study of religion was born, even if its first promoters were, as I argued in A New Science, the Discovery of Religion in the Age of Reason, enlightened Christians rather than deists, agnostics, and atheists. We must recognize that the idea of studying all religions in the same way, with the same criteria, is something fundamentally alien to any theology, which must, by definition, remain grounded in a specific religious tradition, be it as liberal and open as it may. Theologians built upon their own tradition. Historians of religion are primarily interested in deconstructing these theological buildings in order to analyze from within the inner hidden mechanisms of the religion and their functioning. Throughout the Middle Ages and in the early modern world, the reigning taxonomy of religions distinguished between Christianity, the single vera religio, Judaism and Islam, both monotheistic, but nonetheless false religiones, of all the rest, paganism. It is only with the Enlightenment that this traditional taxonomy was abandoned and that one started to distinguish between numerous kinds of paganism, extremely different from one another. I have analyzed elsewhere the far-reaching consequences of this paradigm change. Suddenly, starting with the Romantic period in the early 19th century, the old religions of Iran and India were presented as closer to that of those of Europe than Judaism and Islam. In a sense, Christianity lost during the 19th century what had been its original syngenea or family link with Judaism. A common denominator of the different forms of Abrahamic monotheism will be found more probably in behavioral habits and in the thought patterns they foster than in theological tenets. In other words, anthropology, ethics, and politics might be more secure guides than theology in our quest to identify specific elements of the three Abrahamic traditions as they were formed throughout history. The French Islamicist Henri Corbin has called attention to what he named the paradox of monotheism. For Corbin, the radical character of monotheism or the thorough insistence upon God's oneness makes it almost unsustainable. Hence, a series of hypostases and intermediaries were created in the different traditions to preserve at once the unity and transcendence of God and his imminence in the created world, including the possibility for humans to relate to him, angels, saints, and of course, God's own son. What Corbin hints at, perhaps, or better, a logical consequence of his approach, is that polytheism, rather than monotheism, may be the natural religious posture. Establishing a hierarchy of the divine powers and a division of powers among the gods makes obvious sense. 
Monotheism demands a capability of abstraction that is difficult to sustain for long. Hence, a number of different strategies were conceived to clear a way to the too distant divinity. More than any other branch of the human sciences, which all need to follow the imperative of the Diltaian Verstehen, the study of religion must find a delicate balance between the emic and the etic, the view of the insider as well as that of the outsider. The student of religion must be able to develop a deep sympathy for the object and the subject of his study, while retaining at the same time a critical approach which alone permits the sharp analysis of religious phenomena in comparative perspective. The ethic viewpoint is also in its essence deconstructionist of theological structures. It should be clear that studying dead religions is, at least from the ethic point of view, easier than studying living religions. Moreover, the dual attitude between emic and ethic requires much intellectual and psychological flexibility and is nowhere as difficult as it is for the scholar focusing on her or his own religion, even if it is hers or his only nominally. Such an approach is hardly popular in our times when religious studies are too often considered as a legitimate instrument in the search for roots and identity. A more subtle danger in the comparison is that which I propose to call the theology of comparative religion. Traces of the Christian origins of com the comparative study of religion can easily be detected in the, in the work of the late Wilfred Cantwell Smith, who sought to overcome Christian theology and search for a common denominator, faith, among world religions. Smith with whom I studied at Harvard in the 1970s, when he was the director of the Center for the Study of World Religions, had a stimulating approach to questions of religious history and was deeply involved in his attempt to reach the core of religion. With the intellectual honesty that characterized him, he made sincere efforts to understand what he called the faith of other men. Smith always spoke of the history of religion in the singular, in order to stress that the various historical developments throughout the world all reflected in highly different ways the progressive evolution of one single universal concept of religion. Such a, th such a theological approach, it seems to me, retains echoes of belated Hegelianism. It is worth noting that Smith had little to say about either archaic or tribal religion. I'm, uh, I have to say something. I'm criticizing Smith, Smith here, and it is, uh, as, um, as, uh, it is my way to uh, honor his memory and what I learned from him. It is worth noting that Smith had little to say about either archaic or tribal religions. When asked, he would argue that he did not have any friends who believed in the Greek gods or who lived in the Australian or Amazonian hinterland and could not develop, therefore, the intersubjective trust needed in order to, to pierce through the walls between cultures. This may remind one of Buber's argument in Ichundu about the specificity of, specificity of human contact, but it also sounds a bit disingenuous. The scholar of religion does not need to have friends among the practitioners of a given religion in order to understand it, 
No serious comparative study of religious phenomena can avoid dealing with dead religions as well as with living ones. In fact, the modern understanding of central elements of religion, such as ritual, myth, magic, owes much more to the study of, owes much to the study of ancient Greek religion, from Jane Harrison to Jean-Pierre Vernon and Walter Burkert in our own days. Similarly, as Emile Durkheim showed already in his elementary forms of religious life, a, a book first published like Freud's Totem and Taboo in 1912, the insights gained from the analysis of small tribal religions are as precious as those gleaned from the study of world religions, such as Islam, Buddhism, or Christianity. In the delicate balance between emic and ethic approaches, one may say that Smith's approach leans too much on the emic side or that it suffers from an overdose of reverence. Discovering the hidden mechanisms of a given religious situation has nothing to do with the possibility of dialoguing with practitioners of another religious tradition. I would sur surmise, moreover, that the historian of religions should even seek to understand better than the insider how a religious system functions. I think I want to finish uh, in five minutes, and uh, despite my promise to keep going, I will skip pages, and I will now read my conclusion. In modern societies, and the same can certainly be said about the postmodern global village, open religion entails embracing religious pluralism in the, in the public sphere. Hence, traditional religious identities must undergo deep hermeneutic transformations in order for the practitioners to become full and active participants of their societies, rather than passive onlookers tolerated by the other and tolerating it faute de mieux. The core of these transformations is represented by the passage from religious to cultural memory. While the first is centered upon the experience of the group, the second integrates the religious memories of other groups within a given society. The transformation of religious memory into cultural memory will be the counter narrative to the one breeding religious violence. Uh, in this transformation, the main enemy of open religion is its closest neighbor, closed religion, and I apologize. I, in what I skipped, I developed these concepts of open and closed religion and the political dimensions of religion. In lieu of conclusion, let me succinctly assert a few theses on how we should approach the comparative study of the Abrahamic religions. One, since Paul, at least, Abraham, the man who, the, Abraham, the man who was ready to sacrifice his own son in order to obey his God's command, has usually been perceived, to use Kierkegaard's terms, as the quintessential knight of faith. Yet, it may well be that the real revolution in the, religious, in the religion seeking to follow his example is better understood as related to a new conception of ethics than, as Renan famously argued, to the bare idea of one single god. It is the idea of the very core of religion as radical ethics, which induced Abraham to bargain with God on the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
It is this idea, more than anything else, that sets, us, sets aside the religion of Israel in the ancient world and that lays the background for Christianity and Islam. Two, religions are fluid social entities, constantly transforming themselves in history. Recognition of this fluidity is essential in order to avoid the artificial creation of rigid hermeneutics and frozen boundaries. In the case of the Abrahamic religions, one may speak of intertwined or connected histories to use the term called by Sanjay Subramaniam. Three, the scholarly study of religion is a brainchild of free thought, not of theology. The study of religion in general and its comparative study in particular must deconstruct usually rigid theological traditions as a prerequisite to historical understanding. The study of religion, therefore, is a subversive intellectual enterprise and cannot remain an, an identity affair. Four, while the theological genesis of concepts should certainly be acknowledged, their use in a new key represents no impediment to scholarly research. Five, historians of religion are citizens in democratic societies. Democratic societies are more and more on the defensive today, and some of their sworn enemies are radical trends within the Abrahamic religions. Those trends violently reject the Enlightenment attitude for which freedom of religion necessitated its, re its retreat to a great extent from the public sphere. In such a situation, scholars must make their voice heard loud and clear on both the prerequisites and the implications of their research and their educational role. Six, maneuver, maneuvering between heuristic gains and cognitive pitfalls, historians of religion use the tools at their disposal. Scholarly pertinence has obvious social implications and political repercussions. Both directly and indirectly, Scholarly praxis should recognize the deep impact it can have on society. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Professor Guy G. Strumpf's paper, The Comparative Study of the Abrahamic Religions, Heuristic Gains and Cognitive Pitfalls, is, as one would expect of its distinguished author, a wide-ranging and learned exploration of a complicated and increasingly important subject. It sheds light on such key historical questions as the nature of the three religions, or more than three religions, increasingly labeled Abrahamic, and whether and in what sense they are comparable phenomena. But it also raises the still larger issues of the relationship of affirmation to analysis, and the social responsibility of the scholar of religious studies. The paper closes with a spirited proposal about how we critical scholars should relate to the practitioners of Abrahamic religions in our own democratic societies. Since Professor Strumpse was kind enough to mention my own contribution, Inheriting Abraham, I should note at the outset that on the question of terminology, we really differ very little. He writes that after a period of skepticism, he now believes that there is no convincing alternative to the category of Abrahamic religions. Any one of the other choices, he writes, 
involves problems of one sort or another. In my own book, I had written that, quote, to the extent that the term Abrahamic serves simply as a convenient rubric under which to group Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, like monotheism and prophetic, each of which has its own uh, drawbacks, not to mention Western, it is relatively innocent. I went on to observe, however, that unfortunately, a much stronger use of the term is now widespread, one that in effect creates a new religion that both encompasses these three and supersedes them. End of quote. So far as I can see, Strumpsa does not go that extra step, though he does in the end advocate a different type of supersession, the supersession of religion by cultural memory. More about that later. Although Strumpsa also sees monotheism as a questionable cover term, he can still describe Louis Massignon and myself as viewing the depiction of Abraham and the three religions as reflecting, quote, their own perception of the essence of Abrahamic monotheism, end of quote. As I see it, if that last word is to be used at all in this connection, it must be immediately qualified in an important way, as suggested by Strumpsa's own telling comment that the pagan Plotinus held to a stricter monotheism than the Christian origin. Here I've been helped by Martin S. Jaffe's uh, coinage, elective monotheism. The essential marker of elective monotheism is not the uniqueness of God alone, Jaffe writes. Rather, it lies in the desire of the unique God to summon out of the human mass a unique community established in his name and the desire of that community to serve God in love and obedience by responding to his call, end of quote. In the case of Judaism, that unique community is Am Yisrael, the people Israel, the Jewish people, as a corporate collective reality that transcends the individuals who compose it in any one generation. In the case of Christianity, the unique community is the church, the body of Christ, Soma Christu, as the Apostle Paul revealingly termed it. In the Islamic tradition, it is the Ummah, the community of all Muslims. Historically, Jews and Christians have understood membership in their respective unique communities to be determined through descent, literal in the case of the Jews, who have understood themselves to be a natural family with a supernatural vocation, and adoptive in the sense of the Christians, in the case of the Christians, who have understood themselves to be grafted into the stock of Abraham through the grace of God by their faith in the Christ. By contrast, Muslims, if I understand the matter right, do not see their community as descended from Abraham or Ibrahim, but rather they understand their religion to be the restoration of the religion of, of Abraham, Milat Ibrahim, to speak of the three Abrahamic religions as reflecting variant perceptions of the essence of Abrahamic monotheism then, will not suffice. One must instead talk, take with absolute seriousness the claim that God has, to revert to Jaffe's words, summoned from out of the human mass a unique community established in his name, a move that is reflected in the human level in, quote, the desire of that community to serve God in love and obedience by responding to his call. Guy Strumpsa is correct, that in, correct in noting that the concept of Abrahamic religion has picked up momentum of late because of some European Christians belonging to the intellectual elites who sought to welcome the new Muslim populations of Europe as if saying, you too are members of the family, just as they started referring to the Judeo-Christian tradition, another misleading uh, term in my opinion, and I suspect his. But I would simply ask those elite intellectuals a few questions. 
First, why are you so elitist? But that's a separate question. <laughs> it's because they're intellectuals. Uh, I would uh, ask those elite European intellectuals and American intellectuals a few questions. First, members of what family? How does one become a member of that Abrahamic family? Through birth? Through conversion to Judaism? Through baptism? Through recitation of the Shahada? Along, of course, with all that those different ritual acts entail? Or are we to think that each of these modes of entry is of the same value as the others? Assuming that, as a matter of fact, no an assumption that, as a matter of fact, no classical Abrahamic uh, tradition ever made. I wonder whether Christianity would have come into existence at all if the notion that birth as a Jew or conversion to Judaism sufficed to make one a member of the Abrahamic family. Now, if we view these issues of community identity and practice from a global perspective, as comparative religionists tend to do, it will be tempting to see them as reflecting what Freud called the narcissism of small differences. In this case, a hypersensitivity to mere details that pale into insignificance in light of the later, later excuse me, the larger Abrahamic commonalities. To those who subscribe to that judgment, I would again ask a few questions. First, what if Mies van der Rohe was right and God is in the details? Or to paraphrase Soren Kierkegaard's great anti-Hegelian meditation on Abraham, what if the particular is actually higher, not lower, than the general? If that is the case, then the larger modern construct, Abrahamic religion, should stand at best in a subordinate position relative to the traditions for which it serves as a rubric. My other question is this. If those differentiating details matter so little, what then does that say about a cognitive minority, like the minuscule Jewish people, who historically have made great sacrifices to retain their identity in the face of intense pressures of various sorts to assimilate to the larger group? In a situation in which religious truth is equally distributed among a set of related traditions, why exactly is the embattled minority's retention of identity still worth its steep price? Here I am suggesting a paradox. Although those who speak of three co-equal Abrahamic religions see themselves as affirming the legitimacy of those who are outside their own tradition, their move actually undercuts those outsiders' raison d'etre. An unintended consequence of religious relativism, or a relativistic mode of pluralism, it strengthens the larger religio-cultural entities at the expense of the smaller ones. One last comment about the foregrounding of monotheism as the distinguishing marker of the Abrahamic religions. To Jews and Muslims, this depiction of Abraham as seeing through the other gods and getting into deep trouble for doing so is quite familiar. Originating in Second Temple Judaism and prominent in rabbinic literature, narratives of Abraham the iconoclast later came into the Quran as well. They are not, however, found in the Old Testament, to use the Christian nomenclature, unless you watch TV, in which case it's the Old Testament. <laughs> in Genesis, and for that matter, throughout the entire, uh, that entire collection, there is no indication that Abraham was thought to have insisted that his God was the only one, or to have engaged in a contestation with the worshipers of other gods. Various biblical prophets, uh, in, uh, in the manner of various biblical prophets, such as, most famously, Elijah. 
For that reason, I can imagine that Christians seeking to stress monotheism really ought to prefer to speak instead, and more accurately, of the Mosaic religions. Alluding to the Pentateuchal insistence, voiced in the name of Moses, that Israelites, at least, must worship the God of Israel alone. But for Christians to prefer the rubric Mosaic would likely raise the hoary question of why they did not observe the Pentateuchal commandments, which rabbinic tradition numbered at 613, a set of obligations rabbinic tradition regards as incumbent on Jews alone, by the way, and not on Gentiles. On the other side, given the notion that Christian faith makes Gentiles heirs to the Abrahamic promise, the term Abrahamic religions can give Christians the reassuring sense that they are once again widening the parameters of the elect over against all those tribalistic particularists, this time incorporating outsiders not into the body of Christ, to be sure, but into the larger Abrahamic sodality where non-observance of the Torah and its commandments is once again no imped impediment, in fact, a matter of indifference. Similarly, I can imagine that some Muslims would enjoy the thought that other peoples of the book are at long last recognizing the importance of that religion of Abraham. But from the vantage point of the Jewish tradition, which in the main sees the Mosaic or Sanhedrin uh, moment as more important and standing higher than the Abrahamic, uh, not lower, things look very different. In Professor Strobes's thinking, the logic of Abrahamic monotheism entails global proselytization of the sort associated with two of the Abrahamic religions, but not the third. Quote, in establishing world religions, Christianity and Islam have brought to its rational conclusion the belief in one universal God, he writes, distinguishing themselves radically from Judaism, which has ever remained unable to solve the antinomy between the universal God, father of all humankind, and the idea of a chosen people, end of quote. Here again, I hear overtones of a philosophical, philosophical conception of monotheism in the Hebrew, excuse me, a philosophical conception of monotheism that is quite distinct from the covenantal monotheism that predominates in the Hebrew Bible and in probably most subsequent Jewish tradition. Even so, there's no logical contradiction in the affirmation that the one God who created all human beings in his image and cares for them, also brought into being and then fell in love with one particular people whom he separated from the rest of humanity and to whom he graciously made distinctive promises and delivered special obligations. In sum, if we're talking about a theology of a personal God acting in history, rather than uh, about some form of some version of monism, the notion of a degree of enduring religious diversity in humankind poses no conceptual challenge. There's nothing irrational about it and there is no need to establish a worldwide political civilization simply on the basis of the belief in one God. Unlike an implication that the Christian term election can leave, chosenness in Judaism is not soteriological. The distinction between the chosen and the unchosen, that is, does not equate to that between the saved and the damned. Within this Jewish perspective, there's nothing in the belief in one universal God itself that must impel believers to want to make outsiders into insiders. Actually, both the Tanakh or Jewish Bible and rabbinic literature offer a much more complex picture than a simple dichotomy of insiders and outsiders. The opposing view, once again, seems to me to derive from an excessively abstract, philosophically driven concept of God, one very much at odds with the highly personal deity who dominates in biblical narrative and prophecy and in rabbinic midrash. Now on to Guy Strumpf's own normative proposal. 
I put it in my water. Here it is. In his account of the history of scholarship on religion, Strumpsa stresses repeatedly the secular or even anti-religious character of the field from its inception and commends that character in the present. It is from the spirit of free thought, he observes, rather than from theology, that the modern study of religion was born. And today, too, he maintains, it belongs to secular humanistic studies which perceive religion as a human, not a divine phenomenon, end of quote. There is thus not just a tension, but if I understand him correctly, even more than that, an irresolvable contradiction between the study of religion and theology. Theologians build upon their own tradition, he writes, whereas historians of religion are primarily interested in deconstructing those theological buildings in order to analyze them, analyze from within the hidden mechanisms of religion and, religion and their functioning." End of quote. In the case of the subject at hand, as he sees it, if the locution Abrahamic religions comes to us from interfaith goodwill, rather than rejecting it en bloc, we must cleanse it, as it were, of theological implications in order to make, secondary, make safe secondary use of it. End of quote. Not surprisingly then, Strumpsa expresses regret that some scholars connect their scholarly work with their personal affirmations. In his words, religious studies have too often become a legitimate byproduct of the search uh, for roots and identity, a development that is utterly, uh, end of his quote, a development that is utterly unbefitting the field that he calls a brainchild of free thought, not of theology, and a subversive intellectual enterprise. At the end of his paper, however, it becomes clear that Strumpf's own scholarship, his pursuit of the study of religion, is itself in support of a deeply felt personal affirmation. Not a theological one, to be sure, but one that derives from his allegiance to democracy and the role of the, seculars, of the scholar in democratic society. Protecting oneself behind the veil of objectivity and the strict limitations of technical dis, uh, dexterity, professionalism, he tells us, in order to refuse all search for truth, risks, I'm afraid, betraying the humanistic justification of academic research." End of quote. It would seem then that this humanistic justification of academic research serves as Strumpf's norma normans et non normata, his bedrock norm to which all else is accountable. Given this core affirmation, our presenter, if I understand him correctly, I'm sure he'll let us know if I didn't, uh, feels comfortable not just describing the Abrahamic traditions, as many historians of religions do, but also in prescribing for them. They must, he tells us, adopt the stance that he calls, quote, open religion, which entails embracing religious pluralism in the public sphere. Hence, he goes on to say, traditional religious identities must undergo deep hermeneutical transformations in order to become full and active participants of their societies. The core of these transformations is represented by the passage from religious to cultural memory." End of quote. From this, I would infer that as things actually turn out, the study of religion is not, a totally, is not totally a subversive intellectual enterprise after all, and that in its deconstructing of theological buildings is not an end in itself. Rather, it stands in service to a constructive agenda, the replacement of those traditional religious identities with identities more consonant with secular humanistic thinking and with modern democracy. Given the secularity of the contemporary Western University, however, this strikes me as a very limited and selective form of subversion, one that undermines only those buildings that are off campus. 
I do not dissent from Guy Strumpf's commitment to religious pluralism in the, in the public sphere or to the separation of religion and state that must, to one degree or another, accompany it. Although I do think that pluralism is one of those terms that, like Abrahamic religions, is too often analytically squishy and employed almost as a talisman to get us out of hard decisions. What I do wonder about is the connection of this with the vocation of scholars of religion. Whence do we derive the norm that says the latter, the scholars of religion, must function of advocates of secularization relative to traditional religious practitioners, and in this instance, help affect the passage from religious to cultural memory? Sometimes Strumpson writes as if that secularizing agenda is not the whole story, leaving me to wonder how his proposal can deal with the rest of the story. Methodologically, historians of religion should all behave as if they were atheists, he writes, or at least agnostics, expected as they are to analyze all religions with the same tools, to apply to them the same criteria of investigation, to consider them all as products of human societies rather than of divine revelation. End of quote. Note the qualifications here. We are speaking about methodology within a particular discipline, not about ultimate truth, and we are to behave as if we were atheists or agnostics, as if we were atheists or agnostics, easier for some people than others. Uh, note the contrary to fact uh, subjunctive, as if we were. Not that we must actually be those things in all our commitments, associations, and practices. What puzzles me is how a methodological norm governing operations within a particular and rather tiny discipline can be transformed into a normative framework for a whole society or polity. In this case, superseding traditional interpretations of Abraham along with the traditions with which he is associated as a recipient of divine revelation and a beneficiary of God's special providence. I do not see how the needs of democratic governance or the discipline of the study of religion can warrant such a massive supersession as that from religious to cultural memory. In other words, I need help in understanding why all of society should comport itself in accordance with the methodological strictures of comparative religious studies. As for democracies in particular, I would think they are better served by seeking to be neutral both between religions and between religion and secularity rather than by establishing secularity itself as the norm and thus willy-nilly precluding religious practitioners from speaking in their own voices. It is also the case that a wider view of the history of scholarship suggests that the wholesale replacement of religious by cultural memory may not be necessary. For Strump said the approach of the religious studies scholar which he says rejects hallowed conceptions and perceptions will soon find itself at odds with religious orthodoxies and religious communities. End of quote. He seems to admit, to admit of no exceptions. No caveats will help here, he warns. The scholar knows that the truth she or he is seeking is unacceptable by the, uh, by the insider. The history of biblical criticism, both of the Hebrew Bible, uh, uh, Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, is here a striking example, end of quote. Now, I readily acknowledge that the clash between the historical criticism of the Bible, under whatever definition, and some religious communities has been a familiar and ongoing phenomenon over the past few centuries. On the other hand, outside of fundamentalist or hyper-traditionalist institutions, the findings of the historical critics have been absorbed into seminary curricula and the like, 
and it is not rare to find them interacting productively with the traditional religious affirmations. As a result, those making such affirmations have to adjust them to the newly discovered or alleged realities. The academic field of biblical theology is a good example, one to which Roman Catholics and liberal Protestants have long made contributions, and in which evangelical and even some Jewish voices are now also being heard. I might add that in some segments of Orthodox Judaism, a growing awareness of the need to reckon with the findings of historical scholarship can also be detected today. We also have to reckon with movement in the opposite direction, from religious traditionalists into the world of academic religious studies. A few decades ago, Midrashic exegesis, for example, was mostly known only to highly traditional Jews. But it, is now, but it now attracts wide attention among critical biblical scholars who find it highly relevant to the growth and compositional strategies of biblical texts themselves, in both testaments. It's hard to believe that this interesting development is unconnected with the influx of Jews into academic biblical scholarship over the same period. In a case like this, a scholar's awareness of his or her roots and identity enriches critical scholarship rather than undermining it. In my own view, this encounter of religious tradition with critical scholarship should also encourage secular scholars of religion to treat with respect the possibility that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in uh, a non or anti-theological methodology and that there is no logical necessity to believe that one's religion is solely a human, nor, uh, not a divine phenomenon, to, to quote Professor Strumpf's words again. In saying this, I'm endorsing his point that, quote, the student of religion must be able to develop a deep sympathy for the object and, and the subject of a study while retaining at the same time a critical approach, end of quote, except that I'm extending the set of recipients of the sympathy to include the practitioners themselves, and of course those among them who pursue modern religious studies. An active religious commitment can obviously be a source of bias in the negative sense, but can also correct biases, especially those of scholars who imagine themselves to be religiously neutral or without contestable presuppositions of their own. In a more practical mode, I would note that those who see themselves as debunkers of theological claims depend for their very livelihood on a steady stream of bunk. <laughs> I hasten to add that what I'm imagining is not a synthesis of theological affirmation and critical study. I do not envisage a dissipation of all tension, but rather something more like a creative and productive interaction marked by dialogue, critique, reformulation, and the replacement of stereotypes and overgeneralizations with a more accurate view of the other. Come to think of it, that is an excellent model for the study of Abrahamic religion as well. Thank you. We don't have much time and uh the organizers wanted to have uh, questions from the audience, so I'll just say one or two sentences. Uh, thank you, Professor Levinson, uh, for also for having referred to the parts of my paper that I skipped. I knew that would happen. Uh, I'll say two things. One is that what I ask when, I mean, uh, A, three things. A, I knew I was provocative. I did this on purpose. It's late and I didn't want you to fall asleep too, obviously. Um, but what I meant by methodological atheism is what Husserl meant by epoche, 
when you're focusing on a problem, on a phenomenon, you put the rest of the world in parentheses as if it did not exist in order to, to understand. That's what I meant. Uh, second, my second remark is that uh, the divergences between us reflect the very different uh, origins uh, and uh, of both of us. We come from very different societies. Um, I live in the Middle East where the uh, problem of religion or, and the interface of religions, usually Abrahamic, all of them, uh, is uh, very different from what uh, you can find in this country. And as both, uh, uh, and, and I teach in a university uh, where officially private, but my salary is paid basically by, uh, was, was paid by uh, public money. Uh, and therefore, I feel that it is my duty as a scholar to be a citizen. That's, that's what I meant. And I, I was there argumenting against uh, Russell McCutcheon, who accused me of being normative. I say, yes. In a society, what you do in the academic world is a normative uh, uh, activity. It cannot be, you cannot live in a campus uh, forgetting uh, the rest of the world. And here I think it's uh, the state, the place of the academia in America and in nation states like Israel or Europe, most European countries is very different. And uh, I'm very glad that we had these. Uh, uh, these, uh, that we had these differences stated at the start of our conference. Thank you. I am very sorry, but we simply do not have time to take questions, um, which I regret. But um, I want to thank our two speakers for such a rich start to the conference. Uh, Professor Strumsa, Professor Levinson, thank you again. I'm sorry that we do not have time for questions, but thank you all for coming. And I look forward to seeing you tomorrow evening for the second panel. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.